Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm a partner at Skybridge Capital, as well as the managing director of Salt, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Salt Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our Salt conferences, the next of which we're excited to host November 14th to the 16th, uh, back in Asia after eight years uh, at the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. But our goal at those events and our goal here on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited to welcome the CEO, co-founder, and president of Funware, Alan Nitkowski, uh, onto Salt Talks. Uh, Funware is an American mobile software and blockchain company. Alan is a successful serial entrepreneur with multiple exits over a 15-year period to companies including Cisco Systems, Level 3 Communications, and Internet Security Systems. He began his career as a founder, executive, and angel investor uh, after his career in the U.S. Army as an Airborne Air Assault Ranger and qualified captain in the Corps of Engineers. Uh, he's built, founded, and financed 10 private companies since the year 2000, and he's built and managed companies that have won both regional and national awards for growth from Deloitte Technology, Forbes, and the Austin Business Journal. He has degrees from Georgia Tech and Cal Berkeley and today resides in the beautiful city of Austin, Texas. Alan, great to have you on. Thanks for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. I talked a little bit about your background, but we like to start every show with a little bit more from the horse's mouth about your background. I think <laughs> especially given given your career uh, in the U.S. Army that led you into a career as a serial entrepreneur, what uh, led you to that decision to enlist in the Army? And then what uh, about your Army training or your experience in the Army do you think has helped you be successful in business? Yeah, uh, again, thanks for having me. We're always thrilled to tell not only the funware story, but it's fun to dive into, you know, how do we end up in these positions? Uh, arguably, I shouldn't be in the position I am today. And uh, it's fascinating over time to see kind of how life evolves. Um, you know, I grew up in, in Tucson, Arizona, and my uh, parents, neither of which went to college. My dad was a mason and my mom worked at a junior high library. Uh, I was the youngest of three boys. And they kind of said, look, even if we had money to send you to college, which we actually don't, uh, we wouldn't give you a penny um, because if you don't earn it, uh, what would it matter? Uh, so that got me working very hard in junior high and high school. I managed to get straight A's all the way through six grades in a row, graduated as class valedictorian, and that opened up the opportunity for me both in-state in Arizona to go to state schools, and then it opened up some other opportunities. Um, after a Kind of a rigorous review of all those options. I uh, almost went to one of the military academies. Uh, so when Senator McCain was still out in Arizona, I managed to get an appointment to West Point, a congressional nomination, the Air Force Academy. And then I won a series of ROTC scholarships. Uh, as fate would have it, the University of Miami uh, down in South Florida and Coral Gables had a unique program where if you would use your ROTC scholarship there, they would cover your room and board. And that was the only thing I had left to cover. Uh, having had a brother that went right out of high school into the Navy nuclear program, uh, where he served on submarines uh, throughout his career, um, he said, you know what, if you do really well in the military, um, you don't really have to have gone to an academy versus ROTC, just go perform well wherever you're at and see what happens. So I took that scholarship, went down to the U, enjoyed uh, one of the most amazing runs of college football, that's right. 
and as fate would have it, uh, when I graduated, I did well enough uh, to be the top honor graduate of both military science, also industrial and systems engineering. And that afforded me the option to not only get commissioned as a pilot in the aviation branch of the United States Army, but it gave me an opportunity to go to graduate school. Uh, so I delayed for a year, went to Georgia Tech, got a graduate degree in industrial and systems engineering, and then got commissioned uh, you know, immediately in to serve on active duty. Um, it was kind of interesting because I wanted to be a pilot. You know, Back when the original Top Gun came out, that motivated me to want to be a pilot. Um, so Tom Cruise strikes twice, I guess. There you go. At the end of the day, uh, the needs of the Army kicked in because I had two engineering degrees. So they yanked my pilot slot, forced me to go into the Corps of Engineers. And then I went, to, obviously, to Airborne Air Assault Ranger School. And my first welcome to the real world was a one-year assignment on the DMZ during the 1994 nuclear weapons inspections of uh, Korea. Uh, so that was how I kind of got introduced. Uh, my reward for that was getting an assignment in Schofield Barracks in Hawaii, I guess a little bit nicer weather after, you know, what was going on in Korea. And uh, just an accident that I got recruited when I was uh, going to meet um, my wife's family for the first time at the time. And um, lo and behold, someone came up to me at an airport in San Francisco, um, overheard, I don't even know what I was talking about, but asked me if I would consider missing my flight, if I might interview with a company called Northern Telecom. And I thought it was like a joke, you know, like in my uncanned camera. Uh, they said, don't worry about it. We'll pay for your flight tomorrow. After you're done, we'll get you a rental car. We'll give some money so your wife can shop. And then I spent eight hours telling people what a bad idea because I still had more than a year to go in the military. And before I even got back to Hawaii on Oahu, I had a job offer. Um, and so that allowed me to get out of the military, uh, start Valley. And that was where not only did I, you know, work for Northern Telecom, um, but did a little consulting gig and then started my first company, which was a voiceover IP company doing packet switching and using Linux before anyone heard of Linux or open source. Um, and ultimately, we're fortunate that we had built it, sold it to Cisco Systems. And then you just sort of got into that serial entrepreneur game, you know, over and over and over again. So... Uh, I think that's kind of how it started. That led to investing in companies. It led to starting them, serving on boards, advising them. And one thing led to another of company after company after company, as you were describing. And um, I just thank God every day of my life that I've gotten a chance to do all this. Uh, the only other thing that was kind of strange was to, you know, have my first child, start a company and finish my MBA at Berkeley all simultaneously while working full-time to scale a startup. And that was the one that we fortunately sold to Cisco and kind of haven't looked back ever since. Well, it sounds like uh, there's some good genes in the Nikkowski <laughs> family, certainly with you and your brother working on nuclear submarines, but uh, how much of that sort of entrepreneurial zest that you've obviously demonstrated in, in your career as a serial entrepreneur, how much of that do you think was ingrained in you from a young age versus the product of some of the experience that you had in the military where you were doing a lot of uh, sort of very entrepreneurial things within a structured environment? Yeah, I think there's that nature versus versus nurture kind of idea. I think that, you know, in my case, uh, it's really weird to say this, but it, we, we were probably upper lower class if I was being really generous. I mean, I had working class family, working class roots. My father ran his own business uh, originally. So you can kind of see both the roller coaster of like the risk, the reward and all the work that they did. But 
you know, they didn't have the benefit of getting a chance to go to college. Um, they worked very hard. They were wonderful. And what they instilled in me and my brothers was don't feel sorry for yourself. Um, anything is possible if you don't go through life as a victim. Uh, and importantly, get off your lazy ass and go make things happen. You know, uh, you always like to say uh, you'd rather be lucky than good. Um, if you can be both, even better. Uh, but I have met a lot of folks, including myself, where hard work creates luck and creates opportunities. And, you know, oral and written communication matter. Um, but a work ethic, you know, I met a lot of people in my life that are a lot smarter than me, um, that had a lot more access to things that I didn't, whether it was personal or family networks or work connections or school connections. Um, what I found, though, from all of the you know, folks, especially when I went to Miami um, and was surrounded by, you know, families that had amazing good fortune and, you know, money just wasn't seemingly an issue for many of them, you know, versus my $100 a month from ROTC. Um, what I found through that is like very few people were willing to work as hard as I was. So I really didn't care if I ate or if I slept. Um, and I felt like I can outwork you if I need to. And I don't have to be as smart. I, I just need to be persistent. I need to learn. And I think the military sort of turbocharged that because it was about, you know, how do you perform physically, mentally, emotionally? It's kind of like saying, hey, I want to be a SEAL or a Ranger. Like, it's one thing to say that. And then it's another thing to actually do it. Because in the first couple of days or week of doing a, a program like that, you know, all that pie in the sky patriotism kind of goes out the window reality sets in and you realize how miserable and hard it is. And unless you have the mental fortitude to dial in and say, you know, I can do this. All that doesn't matter. The pain doesn't matter. The food doesn't matter. The sleep doesn't matter. Um, all those things set you up to not only do well in the military, but as I found out, that's great for entrepreneurship because you never have enough time. You never have enough money. You never have enough people. And you're assigned resources and say, I really don't care that you're going to go in with a small group of people in the military or a small group of people in the private sector. Uh, you need to perform. You need to go do something amazing. You need to accomplish your mission, whether it's fair or unfair, like get off your pity party. I really don't care. Make it happen. And right. that was the greatest training to ever have in the military to prepare me for Silicon Valley. And being there from you know 1996 to 2001 and living through the boom and the bust of the tech cycle and really just getting plugged in and, and realizing that nobody there cared about race, creed, color, sex, religion, anything. It was the power of your idea, your ability to articulate the problem and the solution, who you were going to have to compete with, what the size of the market was how much money you needed to go do what you were doing, what kind of business model would go with it, and, and how do you get people to back that? And I thought that was just fantastic. Let's talk a little bit more about your business exploits. So as you mentioned, you sold uh, Vovita Networks to Cisco, I think for around $130 million. Then in 2009, you co-founded Funware, which is the company that you're currently the CEO and president of today. Um, you set it up to be the largest mobile cloud company uh, to hit the open gap of 5 billion feature phones going away due to the smartphone revolution. So could you talk more about that idea in 2009 uh, that you initially had with Funware? 
Yeah, so ironically, we started Funware 10 years to the day that we started Bovita Networks. Uh, we didn't pick that by accident. Uh, it was good luck. Um, we also had had the benefit of building and selling several companies before. So as a result, you know, we didn't really want to build and sell Funware. I wanted to build Funware, scale it. And the end state was either the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. That is all I cared about from day one. That was how we built it. That was what we focused on. And, you know, over time, we probably did five different rounds of financing to raise $100 million before we went public. Um, but the whole impetus was like our CTO and I, who had started the first company together and said, wow, the whole world's going to go from circuit switching to packet switching. And we call them the Nellas, you know, Nortel, Ericsson, Lucent, Alcatel, Siemens. We're all going to be replaced, you know, whether it was Cisco Systems or Bay Networks or any of these others. And we're like, with definitive certainty, everything going from here to there. And it's really a migration pattern. It's a forklift upgrade. And we saw feature phones and said, wow, there's 5 billion feature phones. Well, what happens when every one of them is replaced by this? So probably about six months before we started Funware was really when the original iPhone was introduced to the world and this idea of an app store. And what we looked at is said, wow, like this feels like deja vu. We've seen this before. So what would happen if we knew that every feature phone was going to go away through a forklift upgrade to a smartphone? And what if we can create an enterprise software platform that can provide everything you need to be successful on mobile and all the tool sets and software that you would need to engage or manage or monetize large audiences around the world at scale on mobile. Uh, and why that seems really obvious today, at the time, even with all the success and being a serial entrepreneur and putting our own money where our mouth was, when I actually went to pitch this idea originally, only 2% of the world's internet traffic was mobile. Now it's up to over 70%. Of that 70%, over 90% are native iOS and Android versus very small amount that is remaining on mobile web. And we just turned the model of saying, be on the internet, extend a mobile web, extend a mobile app. We said, no, just build for the mobile app, mobile first, mobile always, and by default, it'll work on the mobile web, and okay, great, it'll work on the internet too. But the big idea was to say, I want a funware ID for every human being on earth with a device touching a network, through their favorite brands and applications that run our software. And when I said that, you know, you would think, hey, I want big ideas. I want to back a big vision. We had this team. We'd all done it before. We're a little bit older. I got real gray hair even. Like the whole thing was just weird because people were like, yeah, okay, you want to have a fun ID for everyone on earth. Okay, got it. You know, ha ha. Uh, so what we did is we just said, you know what? Who cares what? the institutional VCs and private equity groups thing, we'll go raise money. So we said, we'll get a million five, we'll sell 30%, we'll structure a series A, we'll do all angels, right? Because what I always loved in life is you don't need the world to believe you, but if you can have 20 people in the world that each have $50,000 believe you, then you get a million dollars of financing to build out your company. So we tried to find 30 people like that and raised a little bit more because we were oversubscribed. And I had promised all of our past investors and all our other deals that me and Luan would never do another deal because they were gracious and nice enough to give us their money and trust. 
for us to build and change our personal lives financially. While they also made, you know, in our first company, 22 times their money in 18 months. So that wasn't so bad. But we said, we really value and appreciate your trust in us. And for the rest of my life, I will never start a company without first giving you the right, but not the obligation to invest and to participate in anything we do. Because without your money, none of this would have ever been possible. So that was what we did. And we said, as long as our customers pay us, then we're on to something. If our customers won't pay, then maybe the other people were right. And then we just kept scaling and scaling. And we started with media, entertainment, and sports, which were the passion verticals where people adopted mobile first. And then over all this time, we kept scaling up until ultimately we went public on NASDAQ uh, and then have enjoyed the last several years uh, trying to introduce our brand and PHUN to the public market. Uh, that was a bit bizarre, but we can get into a little bit of that, especially in the backdrop of using a SPAC when people didn't really know what that was. And then working through that process and ultimately getting rewarded with government shutdowns and COVID. <laughs> yeah. So talk about that. You guys went public via a SPAC in 2018, which was before this whole SPAC sensation really exploded onto the scene. How did that come onto your radar as a, a means to, to going public? What was that experience like and, and what you just alluded to, um, you know, the, the unique experience that you guys had sort of introducing yourself into the public marketplace? Yeah, it was fascinating to watch. You know, we got through to our, our Series F, which in real Silicon Valley terms was really like a Series C because kind of A, B and C were really private and angel and then you know, we raised a $30 million round and a $50 million round, which really was a lot more of, okay, we had corporate strategic with Cisco and Samsung and World Wrestling Entertainment, which was great. We had firsthand technology value fund, Fraser McCombs Ventures, Maxima Ventures offshore in, in Taipei. So that was really the first formal thing. And then we followed that on uh, with Kazana, which is a Malaysian sovereign fund. The Philippine Long Distance Telephone Company, or PLDT, out of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and then we added in others, including Wavemaker Partners, which is one of the funds that are under the Draper Network. So we, we kind of did it in stages. And we got to that weird moment where we weren't quite sure, should we raise you know, growth mezzanine capital as a final private round? Um, and it wasn't clear whether that made the most sense, or do we go public? And then if we went public, the market, it was very unclear at the time, you know, if we went public, being an enterprise software company, but also we had added blockchain and cryptocurrency, we weren't quite sure what the SEC would do. So the net of the whole thing was that we found a SPAC uh, called Stellar Acquisition 3. We had the ability to just consummate a merger and the reason we wanted to do it that way was that, you know, we weren't kind of sure if we did the IPO, if there would be a window at the time we went forward, if we were going to do some kind of a direct listing, we weren't quite sure if there'd be a window again moving forward. And as fortuitous as it was, it made a lot of sense in retrospect, we made the right choice because it took us about eight months to go through the SEC process to consummate our effective date on a registration statement to then just have to consummate a merger closing conditions, if you will, to get public. And at that time in 
excuse me, November, just prior to that, that was when the market blew up. November, December, every market class was down, the IPO window shut, the direct listing shut. But because we already had a pending SPAC merger, all we had to do is meet closing conditions and we could still get public. Um, and it turned out we were a guinea pig uh, with the SEC. We were the first company in human history to engage with the blockchain and cryptocurrency team that was added in May of that year to the SEC. So I jokingly say, you know, the only thing that's worse than working with the Securities and Exchange Commission once is working with two groups in the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, so we went through eight months of a process. We got it done. We went public. Ultimately, it looked like a direct listing because we didn't really keep any money in the trust or take it. But that was about $400,000 that were left in the trust out of 72 million, mostly because people were out for Hanukkah and Christmas. And based on that legally at the time, uh, that became the free trading float of just 144,000 shares, which as you can imagine, isn't good when you start trading. So it was literally like Christmas day, the next day we consummated the merger. The day after that, the US government shut down for a historical record 35 consecutive days. Everybody was gone from Wall Street between Christmas and New Year's because the junior staff was there. We opened for trading and then we start trading from $10 to 15, to 20, to 50, to 100, 150, 200, 250, 300, 350, 400. Two weeks has only gone by. 400 to 450, 500, 550. And our $301 million market cap was suddenly 17.5 billion. And Funware that January was the top performing asset in the world of any asset class or type on any exchange worldwide. And literally, I remember being at the Consumer Electronics Show, literally begging, like, please stop going up. Please stop going up. Because it was just getting insane. Now, what happened? What happened is now the SEC and NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange have rules of a minimum float of at least a million shares, if not more. Uh, I call those the funware rules. Turns out we were the meme stock before the meme stock. My biggest complaint from all shareholders worldwide in the first two weeks, why can't I buy your stock? And we're like, wait, what? Why, why can't I buy your stock? You could sell it, you could hold it, but as they would have it, that the market makers realized that when genuine buy orders came in and they crossed it with a short to provide liquidity, which is what they do, then they had T plus two to cover. And uh-oh, there's no stock. So it was bid after bid after bid after bid at any price, because if the market makers didn't comply, as you know, they would lose their market making license for all of Wall Street, not Funware, all of NASDAQ, all of the New York Stock Exchange, all of the entire business. So I, I literally had to call NASDAQ and said, hey, we, we still have two-sided markets in the United States, right? And that was just bizarre. And as you can imagine, uh, that was not really supposed to happen. Uh, when GameStop and when AMC and all that happened last year, we sat back literally laughing, going, hey, that was us two years ago when no one cared about that. But we could empathize with just how crazy it was because that which goes all the way up, then it's an arbitrage opportunity between the common or your warrants and that price. And it became a race to see who could try to arbitrage. So that led to us being on the Reg SHO threshold securities list for naked shorting because we had people 
with 144,000 shares, we would have five, eight, 10 million shares trade hands, which actually didn't exist. So I could probably write an encyclopedia about how to structure a SPAC, you know, what really happens with all the classes of stock, sponsor warrants, sponsor shares, how to legislate it, how to go public, and then what happens in the trading, because really no one working here should have had to go through all that, but ultimately that's what happened. You were a guinea pig on a lot of fronts, on SPACs, on meme stocks. Uh, you were ahead of the curve on Enterprise Cloud. Could you talk more about Enterprise Cloud? For people that aren't familiar with that sort of segment of the marketplace, what exactly you guys do for some of the, the early clients that you mentioned, ESPN, WWE, NFL, what, what were the specific services that you're offering to those uh, enterprises through your services? Yeah, so great question. So imagine that we have a platform uh, that has all the capabilities to engage, manage, and monetize mobile audiences at scale worldwide. Think of Funware the way you would think of Amazon AWS or Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure if all they focused on were the digital transformation needs of Fortune 5000 and enterprise and government customers uh, for their mobile apps and their identity through their flagship applications that we all download to consume our favorite content, to do our healthcare, to do our banking services, to travel, to operate at work and all things in between. And so what we really did is we took the concept of what enterprise software is and does, the way you would be familiar with Adobe or Oracle, or the way you would think about Salesforce. And we created a platform uniquely to help you with those digital transformation needs on mobile for Apple iOS and Google Android. There's a blockchain component to your business now. Is that something that uh, you started recently, something that you were early on that trend as well? But could you talk about how you've integrated blockchain uh, into your business? Yeah, great question. Because you know what we wanted to do is to be a platform. Uh, we wanted to be a SaaS company licensing software one, three, five years. And then if you wanted to just have us do all the work for you, and then you could be successful on mobile, great. If you wanted to use just pieces of functionality through what are called software development kits or application program interfaces, you know, that would be like flour, sugar, water, and you're an amazing baker to make cake. Some people say, well, I don't really want to learn how to bake, but I like to eat cake. Can you give me some sprinkles or change the icing? So we would kind of have everything horizontally and vertically you would need to address those engagement, management, and monetization needs for these audiences, whether they were consumers, channel partners, or employees. Didn't really matter. That was just kind of semantics. And so what we tried to focus on was that. And then blockchain was something that we added along the way because we kept hearing from customers about, hey, you know, we do all this stuff with Facebook or with Twitter or with Google and when we use these platforms, we waive all of our rights. You know, we can't really audit any of it. You know, we put all this money in, we see what they say happen. We kind of can see a little bit of it, but not a lot of it. You know, should we trust it? Is it real? Are they bots? Like, how, how do you know? And so what we did is we said, well, I'm going to add blockchain because then we have an immutable global ledger where consumers can see it, enterprises can see it, we can see it. And everything that's happening is being registered. You know, when you're on things like a Bitcoin network, that's every block, give or take about every 10 minutes. You could have other blockchains like Ethereum and others that also are out there. 
And so what we wanted to do is to provide wicked transparency, openness, auditability, tracing, and things that we thought large corporations, public or private, and governments would really want because you want to know that everything happening between brands and people are authentic, that they're genuine. Um, most people don't like to feel like they've lost control of their identity, but we all have. You know, we are the product when you look at data oligarchs like Google and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Um, we use their services and their offerings for free, but they harvest you and your family and every connection you have and they monetize it, but you don't get any of that benefit. So we also incorporated blockchain and cryptocurrency, which we added. Uh, we were the first public company in the history of the world traded on any major exchange like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange to ever issue its own cryptocurrency. You know, people have bought Bitcoin for treasury. People have mined Bitcoin, but nobody had ever issued one as a public company. You know, when we went through with the SEC, they asked us like from the chief accounting office, like, how do we do the gap accounting for this? Like FASB or the Financial Accounting Standards Board, they have no rules. And you know, we're like, we're funware. You're the SEC's chief accountant. You're asking us, you know, like, how do we do this? So everything was a learning process and a guinea pig. And you're right that our addition of blockchain and crypto was a lot based on what I learned from open source with Red Hat. You know, you can download Linux for free. You can download a free Apache web server, but a lot of people like to go to Red Hat to feel like there's a company standing behind it and they can safely bridge through Red Hat to that market with less risk, less exposure, much like IBM downloaded Apache and made web servers through IBM. And a lot more people were like, you know what? Don't know about Linux and open source, love Apache, but wouldn't it be great if IBM would stand behind it? So we wanted to take the trust we earned from the flagship mobile applications from the biggest brands on earth and say, you know what? We can get you into this new technology. We can do it in a very transparent way. We can do it in a very safe way. You operate with US dollars the way you're used to. We can handle the rest. And now you can get exposure to this in a responsible, safe, auditable way. Yeah, I think sort of digital identity and data ownership is one of the huge use cases for blockchain technology. And you guys were obviously very early on that train, which is, like you said, you know, I use Gmail. It's free. I use Google search right. free, you know, great things. It's like if you can't identify the product, then you are the product. Right. And right. and it's one of the most valuable uh, assets that we own as people is our own data, but we're not able to monetize that at all. It's, it's companies that are monetizing our data uh, under the guys that are offering us, you know, services for free. So really excited about what you guys are doing on that front and what generally is happening around digital identity and, and data management using blockchain. Sure. Um, I want to talk about this mobile first idea that you guys were very early on again. You know, you said, cited that statistic that more than 70% of of global web traffic is now on mobile. What type of externalities or consequences or opportunities have arisen from the fact that we are now uh, an extremely mobile-first society beyond just the obvious ones? And, and how do you think it's going to impact sort of global commerce going forward? Yeah, well, I think that what we've learned is uh, we're all pretty finicky. Um, 
give me what I want, when I want it, wherever I'm at, in my own best interest, or go away and get the hell out of my life now. You know, that's a, a bizarre concept. You know, you said you have young kids. I'm, I'm remarried now. I have seven kids, right? I've got five daughters, two sons. Six of them were 20 to 23 years old in the midst of college and high school. And, you know, my youngest is a high school junior. And, you know, they've never grown up with anything but always on access to everything 24 7, 365. Um, you know, in many respects, I feel guilty is almost like, I've contributed to the delinquency of the global population by having people like little crack addicts almost that must have mobile, must have mobile. And, you know, it's caused people to sort of lose touch with personal relationships, personal engagement. Even when people go to events, are they really there or are they just trying to show off with all of their videos and postings and social media and, you know, acceptance around all this? So I think what we found is that, you know, even COVID dramatically altered behavior in so many ways. Um, and what happens right now, if you leave home and you forget your phone, what do you do? You stop and you go back home and you go get it. If you leave home without your license, you probably won't worry about it, right? You'll just keep driving and you'll do what you need to do. And, you know, if you get pulled over, you're like, oh, sorry, officer, I forgot my license. Um, but we're kind of like, addicts um, and we're honed to our mobile device. It's great that you design mobile first. Um, it is scary to look at people's screen time, whether you're a parent or a kid, whether you're with work colleagues or not. It sort of has invaded our private lives because you're always accessible. You're always available to be reached, whether you're on vacation or not, whether you're in the office or out. So I think you're just seeing like both the good and the bad that's happened around this. You know, there's good things we do with mobile. We care greatly in this, you know, brand right here with the, is really a geofence indoors and outdoors. What happens when you enter or exit a geofence with an X, Y, and a Z coordinate, longitude and latitude for GPS, and then vertical when you're dealing with Wi-Fi and beacons and all these things. So if I know sub one second, where you're at, who you are, what you're doing, what you care about, your intersection with wherever you're at and that brand or that venue and what they care about. How do I manage the most perfect one-to-one -one contextual engagement and interaction possible based on what's in it for you, what's in it for the brand? You have identity and sovereignty over yourself. You can choose how much to share or nothing at all, brand by brand, venue by venue, app by app. So all that's great. But what really matters in the world is both the good and the bad that can come from that. We've done some good things. You know, where did you see this device of your 18 billion funware IDs buried in a petabyte of data growing at five terabytes a day? Have you seen this device before? And we go, great, here it is. Okay, which device did that device interact with? Then you find that. Then where do those devices go and who do they interact with? And you find that. And you realize in a couple of hours, you just reverse engineered a human trafficking ring in a foreign country. So there's a lot of goodness that comes out of that. You know, there's a crime. Someone was shot. Okay, we have video. We can't really quite tell. Who's our suspect pool? Okay, well, let's draw a geofence around it. Let's figure out what devices were there. 
And by process of elimination, let's figure out who might be potential suspects in the shooting. And then you can marry real-time video with date and time, with device information, and suddenly you can figure out complex puzzles in a little more rational way. Um, how is that you know, operating when it's bad? Um, you're going through a divorce. There's a custody problem. Everybody's arguing about custody. And suddenly you have breadcrumbs to trace where people are at, where kids are at. And that isn't necessarily a good thing. So we like to say that our approach is we empower you to be in charge of yourself. We want to reward you for being you, but you can opt in or not at your own discretion or not, depending on whatever experience you want that's selfishly in your own interest as it should be. And then those brands or those corporations or those governments that want to do that should have your permission before they do such things. So I think that's what mobile first has changed is what's good, what's bad. You know, hey, if I'm at Atlantis, like one of our customers, and they're going to give me a special to go gamble right now, you know, I might want that. I might enjoy that. Or you and your wife want to sit down and get a drink at the beach. You just hit a button and bingo, it knows exactly where you're at, what your order is, and they show up and delight you. So there's a lot of good and bad that can happen to these. And I think what we've tried to do is to respect the unique nature and the personal interaction that goes along with trusting mobile and apps and devices. Very well said. And I'll have to say, I had four kids in five years. I get a lot of uh, astonished looks these days. I think everybody uh, having fewer kids. And so it's great to, to talk to somebody who's had seven <laughs> Uh, over, I don't know exactly what span that was, but you, you were even busier than me. So I'll, I'll pass that on to my wife. So, uh, so we feel uh, a little less self-conscious. It'll be great up until they all were in college. Then you get to have a lot of fun with the expense of college plus room and board for, I had six in college during COVID. So you only have four, but yeah, it's breathtaking. <laughs> Amazing. Any twins or triplets in there? Uh, no, actually. Oh, actually take that back. Uh, one set of fraternal twins. Uh, well, Alan, great talking to you again. It's Alan Natowski, president, CEO, and co-founder of Funware. I want to monitor everything you're doing because you've gotten ahead of so many trends. Uh, it's exciting to see what you've built, but a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for your military service. Uh, my, my grandfather served in the U.S. Army. It's something that, uh, you know, people that, that I encounter that, that went through that experience, you know, unique people that uh, certainly learned a lot, and, and we're very appreciative of the service that you provided. So. Well, thank you very much. It's very gracious of you. And I very much appreciate being included. It's so much fun to talk to folks and help learn. I, I learn every day from all sorts of people around the world. And whenever we can make a small contribution back, uh, we, we really value that. Well, that's what we love doing at SALT. We love exposing people to brilliant people uh, like yourself and bringing people together at our events. So thanks again, Alan. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's SALT Talk with Alan Natowski of Funware. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can access everything for free on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can listen to this in audio form. We're on social media. Twitter is where we're most uh, active. Hopefully, you don't spend too much screen time on your phone, but if you do, hopefully you have some ownership over that data. But uh, at Salt Conference is our handle on Twitter. 
And please spread the word about these SALT talks. Again, we love educating uh, our community and uh, we're able to do that on a broader scale when people make referrals to our SALT talks uh, series. So again, thank you, Alan. Thank you everybody for tuning in. We hope to see you back here again soon.